All right. Well, uh, hello, Matt. How's it going? Uh, you had a little bit of a false alarm yesterday with, uh, you know, potential birth of your sixth child. I hope you don't mind me sharing it. You know, it's <laughs> hopefully uh, coming soon, though. But uh, I almost thought I'd be doing this today alone. But I'm glad you're with me. Yeah, it was a little uh, hit or miss for a while there. It was actually my my firstborn. Uh, she, she had her 10th birthday yesterday. So we thought we may be sharing birthdays for a while there. But mm -hmm. uh, baby decided to hold off a little bit longer, so yeah, we're we're still on on alert for the for the next kid, but uh, don't yeah. know when that'll be now. All right. Well, for everyone uh, listening on Twitter Spaces or YouTube Live, it's being broadcast live on both at the same time, being recorded on both, uh, and we'll just jump right into it. I guess we usually start with the macro stuff. Um, I think the first top thing is uh you know in our mind we both texted each other this weekend and we're like you know the elephant in the room seems to be you know that putin and his access to nuclear weapons um and you know sure enough on sunday and yesterday it was brought up but we wanted to put our hedge on on like saturday just because we were like wow if putin's getting humiliated enough like what does a bully do when they're humiliated right so um what are your thoughts about uh putin and the potential of nukes or a nuke being you know set off i mean what do you think i know we've both researched it and it probably seems unlikely, but um, what do you think? Yeah, it, it is funny because I had been thinking about it a lot, like on Saturday morning, basically. And then you texted me that I think like two hours later. And uh, it's, it's funny how we were kind of thinking the same thing. I mean, yeah, it's, it certainly is, is an unlikely outcome. I, I want to make that kind of very clear. Yeah, unlikely, all the, for sure. All the, you know, kind of experts <laughs> commentating on it, you know, think it, it's highly unlikely. But at the same time, I, th I think all the experts also thought, kind of an invasion of Ukraine in general was unlikely and probably particularly one where they were um, marching toward, you know, Kyiv. Um, there was a lot of thought that, you know, they would just kind of target these these breakaway regions as they're called, you know, quote unquote breakaway regions. I don't even want to call them that, um, yeah. you know, but e in Eastern Ukraine, but instead they're kind of shooting right for, you know, the heart of, of, of the government and kind of blatantly trying to overthrow the government. So you know, that seems to be firing back. I mean, the the pushback that that they've uh, received, obviously from the, the Ukrainian on the ground forces, is a lot more intense than they thought. Uh, but also from the international community. I mean, the, the sanctions and you know what you're seeing with the ruble just plummeting, and you know the the Russian stock market remains closed, even though it was down you know like forty percent by Friday. I think it was more like 30%. crazy. Yeah. So you, you can imagine though, if, in Russia. Yeah. Yeah, and that was before you know all the sanctions over the weekend. So you yeah. know you can imagine if they did open the Russian stock market today, I mean, it might be down fifty percent, even from these depressed levels. Yeah, because um, so there's there's a real kind of liquidity crisis. There's there's potential for like a bank run. Inflation is going to be run away or run uh, rampant. So I think this this really backfired in a way that that Putin was not expecting. Um, and so, yeah, when you, my, my thinking is like, I, I'm kind of glad about the reaction that we've seen from the international community and, and uh, the staunchness of, of Russian or of uh, Ukrainian uh, defenses. Um, but, you know, when, you, when you've got like a wild animal backed into a corner, you, they're, they're prone to do something more rash and, and more risky. So yeah. I do think it's at least uh, a possibility that, that you have some um, kind of extreme, uh, you know, Reaction. attack on the, on the civilians. Yeah. And we've already seen it. I mean, there, there's increasing reports of, of kind of bombing of just like blatantly civilian targets, um, you know, both yeah. in Kiev and in Kharkiv. Um, you know, there were reports of these thermobaric uh, bombs being used or warheads being used, which is, you know, essentially like a vacuum bomb, which will like explode yeah. your lungs from the inside. And uh, reports of more of those being, 
moved around. So uh, it seems that this, this situation could deteriorate uh, quite rapidly. And, and, you know, my thinking is if there was some sort of, you know, you know, God, I really hope it doesn't happen. But if there was a, a, a nuclear bomb, for example, used in on, on Ukrainian cities or something like that, yeah, uh, it would be obviously most importantly devastating for those people. So, like, but let's not lose sight of the human element here. But yeah, you know, since we're managing people's funds here, I think we, we kind of need to protect around that. So, you know, we I think it's fair to fair to disclose that you know we did put on a a hedge, you know, in the unlikely event that this happens, just with a small percentage of the portfolio's funds. Yeah. Yeah, we just put the if if it happens, we were thinking it's going to happen the next few days or a couple of weeks, um, and you know, be so horrible. Like it's almost like you know when I put the hedge on during co when COVID was coming, I was like, I felt awful about it. I don't want to make money on suffering of the world, you know, but I had to protect my wealth, and it, I, I didn't. I wanted to put a hedge on just in case it really became a big hysterical event, which it did, and you know, it didn't lead to as many deaths globally as I thought it could, luckily, but the market still collapsed quite a bit temporarily. And a nuclear thing could be a mag, you know, magnitude, you know, a magnitude worse, an order of magnitude worse than, you know, and in, in terms of human death and, and uh, it'd be so horrible. Like I don't, you know, but we do have a responsibility to hedge ourselves or our portfolio for our, our investors and such too. And, um, you know, maybe it's, uh, in our mind, we're thinking maybe like a, somewhere between like a five and 20% chance, which is not tiny, you know, and it's somewhere, but maybe it's as low as a 5%, but maybe it's as high as a 20% chance in my mind that yeah. Putin figures out some way to detonate it. And, you know, I, I've seen some recent analysis that there's like this chain of command. So it's unlikely because, you know, one military officer has to approve it. Then like someone else has to approve it, but I could also, you know, Putin, he's, he's no dummy. He knows that, you know, maybe these people, are going to be resistant. He might get them all into a room with like knives at their necks and be like, all right, I'm pressing it. You do yours. You do yours. You know, who knows what he's doing? He's a, he could be a madman. I, he might not be a madman. Maybe he's a rational actor. I don't know. You know, that's what that's, we don't know what we don't know. And you know, the 50% chance he's rational. That's great. But the 50% chance or whatever that he's a nutcase and a maniac with, you know, health issues at this point, mental issues, you just don't know what he could do then. And it's scary. Yeah, you know, and, and just to be like, I, I kind of disagree with you on the on the probabilities, to be honest, you know, I think it's more like okay. a 5% rather than like a five to 20% range. Um, but, you know, even even still, I mean, if that were to happen, then it's not only the immediate devastation, but you could imagine a lot of the Western allies would feel an obligation to intervene. Yeah. And so then do you have some sort of, you know, if, if nuclear weapons had been used, and now you've got, you know, nuclear powers going off, facing off against each other? I mean, that's, that could have disastrous yeah. consequences. I mean, I mean that sort of event is why Elon thinks like having a, a colony on Mars is a good idea. Like, you, yeah, you, it's yeah. like we're not too far away from you know people realizing, oh yeah, you know what? Uh, there's there's too great a probability of of you know the wrong people you know yeah. uh, making the the wrong decision. So. I mean, yeah, I hope it, it's yeah. a I hope it's a five percent chance, but I think a twenty percent. I say the range of five to twenty because. The more Putin gets humiliated in my in my thought is the more he's humiliated on an international stage and amongst his own people, the more likely he knows he could be overthrown. You know, his main goal is yeah. survivor for survivorship himself. And the only way he survives is to stay in power. The moment he's out of power, he's either going to be killed or put in prison. You know, he's got war crimes. He's not he's not surviving unless he stays in power. Yeah. And so his last option to stay in power might be set off even more chaos whatever way he can so that's why i'm worried about the 
you know, the higher yeah. end of the, the, the risk tail, you know, the, the, the tail risk here, if he gets more humiliated than he already is, you know, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. You know, Vuka, who we had on this channel, had a, a really great thread on this a while ago, um, mm -hmm. you know, basically talking about like his goal is really just to make sure that he maintains his power within Russia. But like even the, even then, there's a sense that like things are not going to go back to the way that they were even just, you know, one week ago. Uh, like right. you can't imagine Putin overseeing like the Olympics again, like he did in 2014, for example. Like he, he's just become overnight uh, like a huge international pariah where this is kind of like an unforgivable sin that he's committed um so yeah i mean i think his best chance is to kind of like maintain some sort of like diminished dictatorship kind of like like you see in syria with um gosh i forget that guy's name but like he used to be you know, somewhat of an international you know figure i know you're talking like, about yeah yeah I, I, um but but I like his name yeah Going. Yeah, so so his position is diminished, but like he still maintains authoritarian power over like this crippled, you know, um, uh, economy, this crippled country that's just like a fraction of what uh, of its former glory. Bashar um, al-Assad was his name. Assad, Bashar that's right. Yeah. Assad. Yeah, and so like I, I think like Putin's best option here is just that this kind of de-escalates somehow. I mean, I think he probably needs some sort of claim of victory, like. Whatever he can yeah. just say that he expelled the Nazis, like whatever, like nonsense <laughs> they're doing yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, but claim some small victory and and maintain power. Like I, I think that's all he really wants. Uh, yeah. But, uh, at the same time, he's not backing down in the least. So it's yeah. very unclear, you know, how far he's willing to go. Yeah, I know. And you got to wonder, like a lot of people are speculating on potential health issues. There's a picture out recently of him at one end of a long table and his military advisors like 50 feet down at the other end. And he's like keeping his distance. Maybe he's immunocompromised or what are does he have some serious health issue that he's taking maybe some drugs or steroids for that make him act a little more aggressively or emotionally? And or maybe he's just doing more recreational amphetamines or something, you know, a lot of famous, you know, world leaders and dictators over the, you know, the last century we've discovered we're taking lots of crazy drugs and we're partly responsible for aggressiveness. So I don't know. I mean, what, what's up with his health or his mental health or, or is there some drugs? It's, it's hard to say. Yeah. I, I, I hesitate to speculate on, on whether those issues are going on, but that was clearly an issue like with, um, with Hitler. Um, and it's kind of astonishing, you know, the, the parallels to, to Hitler now at this point, which is, you know, he's going, going in there to, uh, fight against like the Ukrainian Nazis. And, you know, here he is kind of like replicating the, the playbook from Hitler. It's a, it, and, and like, I don't use Hitler uh, comparisons lightly because I think those are just generally overused, but in this situation, it seems pretty appropriate. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, regardless, like he's clearly in, in an echo chamber where like people who push back and say, Hey boss, that, that may not be a bad idea. Like, you know, that can, that can be bad for your health in, in, in Russia, <laughs> close circle. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's, you know, a hesitancy to, to really convey the truth. And like, I, I've heard a lot of the, the Russian kind of puppets talking on, uh, I was actually listening to, I was trying to get neutral coverage of this. So I was listening to some Indian coverage. Um, mm. and they had like, uh, somebody from Ukraine's parliament and they had someone from Russia speaking. And it's just like, like the, the dissonance in, in the Russian, um, you know, mindset here is like crazy. Like the, the, the whole, uh, the only thing they've been able to say is like, Oh, you know, nobody wants war. Russia doesn't want war. Um, you know, Ukraine doesn't want war, but you know, 
this just kind of has to happen. And like, look at what America <laughs> did. This, this is what, like, there was a lot of what about yeah. What about America? What about, you know, like all the things that you've done wrong? Yeah. Like, oh, okay. But that doesn't justify your, your current action. So, so they, there's really no logical leg to stand on that the Russians have here. So um, I, I'm hoping that there is more kind of internal pushback to this within Russia that continues to grow over time. Um, yeah. But yeah. A couple of things I want to mention also is some, I saw someone ask about, you know, our hedge, what specifically. So yeah, I mean, we like the index hedges of, you know, we imagine like worst case scenario, if they're a nuke, bomb goes off, you know, somewhere and, you know, how catastrophic that would be. And the market we think could gap down immediately, like 15 to 40%, like global somewhere in that range could just gap down like crazy and just out of panic. And so we bought um, some out of the money puts on uh, the NASDAQ and S&P 500 with a very tiny percentage of our portfolio, I think like 2% of our portfolio or something like that. And we did the math over like, you know, two, two week out expiry. So if it happens in the next two weeks or whatever, if the market did gap down like 15%, then our portfolio would be, you know, mostly flat or if it gapped down further, we'd make a little more, make money on it, you know, actually. But, you know, if it only got down 10%, then we might lose, you know, half as much money as we otherwise would, for example. So that's sort of um, our thinking. Um, but if you do, if anyone who's, you know, you know, you just have to understand what puts do and, do the hypothetical calculations yourself. If the prices go down to this, how much money would these puts be worth at that time? And then you can figure it out. It should be simple or your broker can help you figure it out if you wanted. But um, that's the hedge we put on uh, just because we think the next two weeks could be very volatile anyway, but especially if this worst case scenario happens, which, you know, very low, unlikely, but certainly a possibility that we don't want to ignore, you know. And the other thing I wanted to mention uh, Matt, is that we we're talking about information where we're getting our information. And uh, there's some really great Twitter spaces you and I have been ta- listening to. And uh, I don't know if the, we can retweet it later, but there's one in particular, this guy, Walter, who's like Ukrainian, um, put together. And it's got like a few thousand listeners, a few military guys and engineers. It's way better hearing these people that are like on the ground, engineers, soft, you know, just people have a better versus like, liberal arts journalists from the BBC or the New York times or Bloomberg, even, you know, talking about the news that they're gathering, you know, I feel like it's much more meaningful to hear the analysis of the latest, you know, events coming by these folks that are actually experienced in war or they're on the ground in Ukraine and kind of have an engineering mindset versus, you know, journalistic, you know, liberal arts mindset. I don't know. I think we can retweet that after this. So people who are interested in getting the latest news, if they're not aware of it, can, follow that Twitter spaces too, because it's pretty, it's been going continuously for like six days straight now. Um, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's been phenomenal. I mean, they, they, um, there's different hosts that, that come in and out of there. So it, it, it is kind of different spaces from time to time. But yeah, uh, if you look like Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think that's the one that's on right now. And it, it typically, uh, that's the title of it. Um, yeah. But it, it's phenomenal because I, I, uh, I've actually had a subscription to the Wall Street Journal for a while now. And I, you know, I, uh, I I try to stay abreast of what's going on there, but like I was reading the articles and it was like they have the same article up all day long and they change like two or three words here or there. <laughs> and it's just like and it's like all this color commentary that's not like actually lot like live updates of what's happening. And then you, you go on this Twitter spaces by comparison and it's like people are kind of crowdsourcing information, um, so saying like, OK, I'm 
seeing this, you know, uh, a cargo plane coming in from Spain or like something like that. Like there's people kind of tracking that level of detail and, yeah. you know, commentating on what I, what I think has been the most eye-opening to me is just the, the military guys in the room commenting on how poorly managed the, the, the Russian forces have been and, and just kind of like the lack of operational awareness and, and the very basic kind of like blocking and tackling mistakes that the Russian army has just continued to, to make. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the kind of uh, insight that I haven't seen in the tr traditional media that I th think really gives a lot more um, uh, uh, kind of more granular uh, detail of what's happening and, and how, how the next, you know, 24 hours at a time are, are maybe likely to, to play out. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I think this this potential invasion, this, you know, whatever this is, um, changes the future a lot in terms of even China's calculation is to potentially invade or to try to take over Taiwan, you know, the pushback, the international outrage that so quickly spread from the advent of the internet and social media. And now Elon Musk sending Starlink terminals to Ukraine. So even if Russia tries to shut down, you know, the internet, people who have generators or whatever can still get the internet and get free information out to the world of what's going on there and such. So, you know, I think this is a new world and, and, and that's the silver line I see. And whatever happens here, there's no easy takeover of a sovereign country anymore that doesn't want to be taken over. You know, like maybe in the old days you could suppress the communication. So it couldn't get out to the outside world of all the suffering and terrible things going on. But today uh, it's, it's a different world. And, and hopefully that that's the silver lining I see here that the international community, hopefully everyone in the world who would otherwise, you know, think of trying to take over some other territories realizes that, you know, maybe it's not so easy now with, you know, everyone having access to all the information kind of real time of what's going on. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure that it necessarily applies to the, the you know, China, Taiwan situation. Um, that's I think there's a little nuance there that we probably shouldn't go into here. But no, it will. It's more complicated, in, in, I'm sure. In general, yeah. though, that this is kind of a, a sharp contrast or a sharp uh uh lesson i think that that a lot of countries could uh you know learn from um you know one of the surprising things to me though has been kind of the um how swift these sanctions have been and even like neutral historically neutral going back to world war ii countries like sweden and switzerland in particular uh are joining these sanctions of, of russian banks and financial institutions and so you know, like if you thought your money was safe in a swiss bank account and you're a russian <laughs> oligarch and all of a sudden you're finding out actually that might not be the case and I saw somebody's like yacht was uh, some Russian oligarch's yacht was sunk, um, like in some <laughs> yeah, European port. Yeah. I saw that. And so yeah. I, I I don't know. And, and you've actually like just this morning, um, you know, you saw Bitcoin and, and a lot of the cryptocurrencies really kind of jump uh, when when a lot of the, the the broader markets were down. So there was kind of a breaking of that correlation that we've talked about historically. Yeah. Um, so I could see this being a kind of a boon to cryptocurrencies uh, in general because. Um, whoever you are, whether you're, you know, a company, an individual or, you know, a country or, or a, like a central bank and, and you want to protect yourself from, you know, sanctions or, or just a deterioration for whatever reason in the kind of international uh, financial system, it does seem that having some portion of assets in cryptocurrency could be a hedge against, you know, the type yeah. of actions that we've seen from the international community here. So Brett yeah. Witten had a, a good couple tweets on that and I, I, I it kind of surprised yeah. me actually. Yeah. And, and Nassim Taleb has had a lot of really interesting tweets for people that don't follow him. He's provided a lot of, he, he provides, he's one of the most high signal to noise kind of ratio 
uh, tweet people I see some, a lot of times he puts out these like mathematical things that are a little too far for me to get into, <laughs> but, uh, a lot of times his commentary is very interesting. Um, if anyone doesn't follow him, Nassim Taleb, author of the black swan and some other great books. Um, and uh, I mean, I feel terrible also. Don't let's not forget about the Russian people. You know, yeah. I think the majority of the Russian people are not in favor of this war, I would think. I mean, or a large percentage of the more that get information, understand like this is not good. You know, they're they're not blinded. They, if they're not blinded by the propaganda within Russia, which I don't think they are as much anymore, then uh, they have to realize this is this is not looking good. There's riots or, or protests. I mean, in the streets, thousands of people getting arrested, bank runs, like you said, and even the Russian soldiers, you know, like. I feel like, you know, there's been all these anecdotal stories of Russian soldiers just giving up because they're like, you know, they're, they're these conscripts that are just basically soldiers hired to like go, like forced to go into like war. They were told they're going to do a, like a military drill, apparently. And then they're like marched into Ukraine and suddenly Ukrainian soldiers like bombing them. And like one of them, this phone was found after he was dead. There was text messages to his mom saying like, you know, this is much worse than I thought. I thought I was just going to a drill the Ukrainians are not welcoming us. Like we were told, like they're, we don't want to be here. And then the soldier's dead. And you see his phone there with the text messages to his mom, like these soldiers, poor soldiers. Like, I don't think most of them want to be there and they're being like ordered to go in. And uh, you just feel for everyone. I mean, it's really a sad situation, but um, I don't, you know, it's something we're going to continue following. And, and yeah. Uh, on this, um, this, the spaces we were just listening to right before we went live. I mean, there, there was a woman on the ground um, in uh, Kark Kharkov, I think it is. Apologies, my my Ukrainian pronunciation is terrible, but she she was just crying on on the spaces, talking like you could hear the fear in her voice, saying like they're trying to kill us, they're trying to you know eradicate us all. And I, I think it's pretty clear that like the Russian forces don't really have the appetite for like a ground to ground or like a like street fight uh that that's not gonna go well for them but what you know i think the the forces are capable of, of carrying out is you know park your your mlr your multiple launch rocket system a couple miles away and start bombing city centers that's a little bit less personal and you know yeah. it's devastating to the, to the population there so kind of yeah. hearing firsthand just like the the pain and the the horror in, in her voice is uh, it was a good reminder that this is, you know, first and foremost, a, a human tragedy. And of course, yeah. this is an investing channel. We want to cover that aspect of it. But uh, yeah. it's that's a small aspect of the whole situation when you're when you're looking at, at it from a human level. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Elon is helping out with the Starlink satellites and mentioned uh, the space. He responded with the SpaceX logo when the Russian like head of the space agency said, hey, if you sanction us, we can't help the ISS from crashing to Earth. And he responded with like a SpaceX logo, like they'll come to save the day, which is nice. Um, and so I guess moving on to like, you know, we got to move away to, to stocks. Obviously, a lot of people follow us for stocks. So we'll talk about Tesla and maybe Rocket Lab and Lemonade a bit and take a bunch of Q&A now um, after that. So for Tesla, you know, it's hard to transition, but Tesla, <laughs> all news is good lately on Tesla, I feel. Giga Berlin is about to open. Um, it's getting final approval later this week, I, I understand, maybe. And um, Giga Austin, is the first delivery is already scheduled. People with VINs that show they're being built in Austin are getting delivery scheduled already. Uh, that's great. And then the biggest news, I think, is the new China factory being announced in Shanghai, I believe, for another factory of a million per year production capacity to be become more of like an export hub. And I think that's that's huge because um, 
China is their most uh, profitable. Chinese ex cars built in China that are exported are their most profitable cars. That's what I've understood. Yep. And uh, so that's huge. And then on top of that, we had that that interview released yesterday, I think, with Bill Huang uh, um, about the uh, I'm sorry, not Brian Zhang. Right. Brian uh, Wang. Brian Wang. I'm sorry. There's a guy, Bill Hang from Pickwick here. Oh, I, think <laughs> I saw my that yeah. employer uh, commenting. Hi, Bill. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> with interactive brokers, he's saying, he's, I think that's the location, but he, he mentioned that the battery supply constraints are no longer a problem, you know, based on his analysis, he's done some very extensive analysis on the Chinese battery suppliers and like CATL and some others. And it's just really ramping up the LFP batteries dramatically across the board where Tesla, you know, the, the, the battery issue, the battery supply is no longer an issue whatsoever for Tesla, um, like it used to be. So that's, that's kind of his thesis that, uh, and that's very good news in my opinion too. So, I mean, all great Tesla news. I mean, what are your thoughts on that stuff, Matt? Yeah. I mean, I, I was actually shocked about the, the Berlin news that, that came over the weekend, like based on everything we'd seen and like the kind of continued litigation and, you know, just red tape around all the, the approval processes, I was just kind of preparing myself that like it would be good news if if this launched in Q2 at some point. Um, mm -hmm. So for this this news to come over the weekend that um, you know they expected to, to to have a I think it was a ceremony like the 22nd or something like that that they're they're planning right now. Uh, yeah, the final approval this week. Um, that was completely shocking to me. So I, I I thought that was a really great piece of news when 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 you kind of doing the, the modeling of how many deliveries can they do this year. Um, and then, yeah, the, the the China news as well. That was not, um, you know, an announcement. I think I or, or many people were expecting. No, um, and so, that's been yeah, so I, under. I think that's been like the that's been the secret. Like that, to me, that should be the biggest mover of the price, but it hasn't really moved. Like that's three times as important as Giga Berlin opening, in my opinion. But Giga <laughs> Berlin's capacity is five hundred thousand. This new thing's going to be a million plus more profitable being built in China and exported. You know, so. You know, as good as it is to get Giga Berlin on the map and say, oh, we got this feather in our cap of a big factory in Germany now, I think the extra million million car production capacity in China is a bigger, much bigger news event in my mind. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're, they're both big and the stock is still kind of, you know, consolidating around these levels. I mean, we had a nice, what was it, 7% gain earlier this, yesterday? I don't know. I'm a little yeah. bit jumbled because of the, <laughs> the, uh, almost baby delivery we had yesterday, but um, yeah, I mean, the stock still seems really depressed relative to I, where I think it, it should be, but um, you can kind of understand that I think with all the, the macro uncertainty, you know, just as, as one kind of anecdote, I mean, um, was it last Thursday, I think, or maybe it was Friday when, when the actual invasion started. Um, I mean, the, the market's absolutely tanked, but then they rallied. It was like a, you know, a massive turnaround, it was like unprecedented turnaround almost. Um, yeah. And so, as I was thinking about that, it's like, you know, the market actually hates uncertainty more than they hate like a land invasion of a sovereign nation, which, yeah. which is yeah. kind of crazy. But like, yeah. if you look at the way the market reacted, it was, yeah, there was much lower prices when, when the market wasn't really sure what was going to happen. Um, yeah. But once it's like, okay, Putin's invaded. I know, I know how to think through that now. Then the yeah. so you saw some money kind of come off the sidelines. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's just the uncertainty. I mean, I was reading a thread earlier today about the mind from the the guy uh, Macro Alf. That guy Vuk had uh, mentioned mm -hmm. we follow for macro analysis. He gave a really interesting thread about like the big money, which is like the pension funds and 
and and such. Um, and he was saying that uh, you know the, the managers of that money, yeah, um, you know they're not incentivized to make more money. They're sort of incentivized to make a certain amount of money or a certain consistent return. And when there's certain signals, they're like whether it's a regulatory signal or some kind of interest rate, they're kind of just they just have to follow the uh, you know model of in their own kind of um, systemic systematic calculation to generate that return so they don't get fired. You know, so it was an interesting right. thread he put together. But basically, it, it, it that's the big money that moves markets the most, whether it's money going to equities in general, like equity indexes or to bonds for interest rates, long duration bonds or whatnot. So it's an interesting thread, but it's all about the certainty and uncertainty, like you said, like once there's kind of more certainty and how to model out an issue, whether it's a problem, it's better to have a problem that's certain versus 50 50 you know chance of the problem being certain or not almost you know it's like it's better to know that interest rates are going to go up 100 basis points in the next you know six months versus being 50 50 is it going to go up 50 basis points or 100 basis points? we're not sure you know like it's yeah it's better for the markets to know that it's going to be 100 basis points that's sort of the takeaway yeah <clears throat> so i see justin says audio issues hopefully no one else is having audio issues um so anyway, we'll so, move on to uh, Rocket Lab, I guess. And they had their earnings yesterday, Matt. Right? What, what was your takeaway from the Rocket Lab? They had also their launch yesterday or two days, you know, and that was successful. yeah, yeah. They had, they came out with a lot of news yesterday. It was like you know three press releases or four press releases right in a row. Uh, but they they've had really a string of good news recently. So they've um, they just got operational their new pad in New Zealand, um, which yeah. is. Phenomenal. They, I think they actually launched that rocket yesterday from that new pad, which was really great. Um, then, uh, oh, just background noise, it sounds like, apparently. So, okay. yeah, there's, uh, I've got a leaf blower outside, no construction this week. Sorry about no that, worries. guys. Uh, but, but you know, getting getting to like the, the kind of core investment thesis, I mean, you saw their backlog grow 200% within five months. So, so the backlog, for, for those who aren't familiar, is just kind of like th their new order. So a customer order for... You know, fifty million dollars for launch services or whatever the the number is, they they grew that just a crazy amount in a short period of time, and it, it's continuing to grow grow at a really rapid pace. So you start looking forward, and and they're uh, they've doubled the launch capacity of their Electron rocket with this new pad opening. Um, they announced a new pad and or a new launch site in Virginia for the the um, Neutron rocket that that they're developing as well, um, and so. So you look at the the huge influx of orders that they're seeing, and then the the fact that they're building out all this capacity to actually service that order, um, or service all those those orders, and you can just kind of see a huge step change in in their financial profile going forward. And they've also been been pretty tight with their cost controls, I have to say. So obviously they're not really close to kind of reaching profitability quite yet, um, but I really like the way that they're they're kind of managing everything right now. Um, the the other thing that I, I I really liked as I was kind of digging into it more is they gave some projections for Q3, some like or sorry for uh, Q1, some guidance. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people have been saying, "Well, oh, you know, I, I like Rocket Lab, but you know, SpaceX is going to be so much more competitive than them that it doesn't really matter if they've got like Neutron or if they've got a, a big backlog." But I, I think people forget uh, they've got this whole kind of components business that they're building out. Um, 
it's not really just launch services. So, so their launch service revenue that they're projecting for Q1 is actually only one third of the total revenue that they're projecting. So, um, you know, I think as these companies mature, as the, as the rocket industry overall matures, the space industry overall matures, I think you'll see SpaceX like having the most, you know, cost-effective launch system for sure. Uh, but they're gonna be really focused on colonizing Mars and that is a gigantic task. What I think Rocket Lab is doing is, is really trying to focus on serving Earth with you know a variety of systems so you know constellations that provide services to earth is kind of like the the end game that they've spoken about um but already before that they're they're doing a lot of scientific work and they're doing you know they're supplying components to other you know satellites and launch providers and reaction wheels and all this sort of stuff and so that's a really big piece of their business right now that i think is kind of flying under the radar or, or maybe that people aren't kind of analyzing um as objectively as maybe they should when, when they just think, oh, they're a, they're a launch service company that's, you know, worse than SpaceX is, is like the uh, critical way you could think about it. So I don't know, that that's what kind of stuck out to me. But but how about you when yeah. you're kind of listening to the earnings call or, or reading through? Yeah, I mean, I just feel like uh, it, it helps solidify our thesis that Rocket Lab is the clear second place to SpaceX. I know everyone's like, oh, SpaceX Starship's going to just change the game. Now, yeah, SpaceX Starship, yeah, is going to change the game. But there's also going to be a second place, you know, versus like Tesla. There's no clear second place to Tesla. Like who knows who second place is? It's all up in the air. Like there's prototypes. Yeah, but no one's doing the equivalent of going to lower Earth orbit regularly, meaning like mass producing a profitable electric car. That's sort of the equivalent of what Rocket Lab is doing to a much smaller scale of, of SpaceX, obviously, or whatever. But to, to, to us, Rocket Lab is the clear second place to SpaceX. And it might be a distant second place, but it's a clear second place. And in an industry that's growing, you know, that's projected to grow to trillions of dollars by the end of this decade, you know, like even if it's one tenth or one twentieth the size of what SpaceX becomes, that's still going to be a massive return from where it is now at four billion market cap. That's the valuation of Rocket Lab right now is around four billion. So all the other space like SPAC companies, that was in my mind a lot of noise. Like there's a lot of cool technologies, but if you can't get to lower Earth orbit, that's the real like you know, Fermi's paradox moment to be a successful space company, you know, if you want to be a big player in the future, I think you got to be able to accomplish that, you know, um, and, and no one else has accomplished that, you know, uh, and, and then there's news of the Soyuz, uh, Russia space rocket that might get shut down if the sanctions go in. And I think Peter Beck commented, um, saying something like, you know, they're building Neutron as fast as they can. But someone asked him in the earnings call or so, somewhere about, you know, if Soyuz can't go to the International Space Station, is Neutron able to do that? And he said, we're building as fast as we So there's, you know, there's going to be opportunities for Rocket Lab to fill. It's not going to be 100% SpaceX. The space industry is not going to be 100% one company. Yeah, it's going to, it could be, it could be even 80% SpaceX. I don't know. That's, you know, but there's still going to be gaps to be filled by other launch providers and militaries or, Governments are not going to want to rely just on one private company only. They're going to send some amount of orders to, you know, a secondary contingency company from time yeah. to time or whatever. And Rocket Lab, at the very least, fills that gap in my mind very strongly compared to anyone else. And I think they're just showing it more and more here. And Peter Beck, I believe, and that's the that's the low end of the of the of the totem pole I see for for Rocket Lab. I think they have a lot more opportunity than just that too. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And, and we, we've talked about the strategic redundancy before, but it's so important, especially with, you know, government or, or defense uh, payloads to have multiple different um, providers to, to be able to, to pr provide those launch services. I mean, that's, that's something that I, I think is never going to go away. I think it, even if 
Rocket, Rocket Lab was 10 times more expensive than SpaceX, uh, but they were the next cheapest option. I'm sure at a minimum, they'd continue to get government contracts just to have that capacity. Yeah, um, yeah, so. absolutely. So let's move on to Lemonade a little. I mean, there's a lot of people will go over Q&A. We're going to leave like 20 minutes or so for a Q&A. So we'll just briefly go to Lemonade. They had their earnings last week. Um, I mean, what, what were your initial impressions, Matt? I had a chance to listen to the earnings call yesterday. I was away on vacation much of last week, but I saw the report and listened to the earnings call yesterday. Or, yeah, But what was your impression, Matt, of the numbers? Yeah, so uh, the the big news was it was a, a, a miss on uh, loss ratio. The loss ratio was like almost 100%. Um, and the reason for that was uh, some historic claims that they had to kind of re-mark and, and kind of readjust. So they were a little bit cagey with the, yeah. um, you know, kind of reasons for that. You know, they gave the example of uh, like million dollar homes that, you know, were like a total loss and when they had reserved for, you know, maybe a, a partial, you know, claim instead. Um, so that was, you know, I, I think a, a huge miss. Um, so, so the, the market reacted very negatively as, <laughs> as we saw and as you could imagine. Um, but from my perspective, and I think we were saying this recently, um, even, even before the earnings report came out, like the, the kind of short term, uh, loss ratios are not as important of a metric to watch, um, as compared to things like customer growth rate. Now, I, I do think if they if they can't turn that around, it's it's indicative of maybe their their you know uh, AI or their their kind of quoting software. Maybe it's it's not as good as uh, they were claiming, or or maybe they don't have any sort of strategic advantage there. So, to the extent that you know this loss ratio that we saw in, in Q4 is indicative of kind of some systematic um, irreconcilable. Um, issue that they have with their quoting system, then, then yeah, that, that could be an issue. But my sense from kind of listening to the call and, and trying to uh, be as objective as possible is that, you know, it's, it's, it's more likely this was kind of a, a one-off that they've, they've learned from. Um, but you, you, it's going to take, I think, several subsequent quarters to, to kind of bolster that, that counter argument that, you know, they've actually learned this lesson and, and loss ratios are kind of coming in at a, at a more normal uh, level. But yeah. um Assuming assuming that all you know pans out over the next couple months, they were also saying you know we've we've essentially kind of hit this critical mass where um, we can stop worrying about kind of building up infrastructure and instead worry about kind of efficiently using it. So um, they, they mm. think 2022 now is going to be their their year of peak losses, and uh, from there things will really turn around and you know you may have this kind of inflection point of, of profitability at some point in the next couple of years. So. Um, it wasn't the best earnings report by any stretch, but I do think with where they are right now, trading at like 1.2 times cash, or maybe now if they've yeah. recovered a little bit, maybe it's like 1.3. The the asymmetry opportunity is just gigantic in my mind. Uh, like like yeah. the market, nobody really believes that, <laughs> at least the market does not believe that they're going to be successful in kind of turning this ship around um, and, and, you know, gaining significant market share. But if they can do that, and I think they had a lot of good stats there on kind of customer growth and, and you know, top line growth was, was reasonably strong. So they can do that and kind of grow premium per customer in, in the way that they have been. Um, I, I think there's a huge amount of upside here. So yeah, it's still heavily shorted stock. I mean, I'm looking at the interactive brokers platform with the shortable shares only being 84,000 shares available yesterday. I think there was zero shares available to short. So they found the stock loan desk found some shares available to short. But it's got a 12.77% borrow fee, which is the highest I've seen in it in a while. It used to be like 4% or 5%. Now it's gone up to 12.77. 
percent and it's a hundred percent utilization. That's the utilization column shows a hundred percent. So if you own lemonade stock on interactive brokers platform and you participate in their stock yield enhancement program, then there's a hundred percent chance that your shares are being lent out at the 12.77% borrow fee. And they split that in half with you or whatever. So that's pretty crazy. Most stocks that are hard to borrow are, you know, they don't have a hundred percent borrow fee. You know, another stock is Matterport. That's got a hundred percent borrow fee, but a hundred percent utilization was called at 1.31. I'm just looking Another one is, uh, wow, DNA, Jinko Bioworks, you know, 100% utilization and 42% borrow fee. That's even more shorted than Lemonade. That's crazy. But, uh, you know, even uh, ARKK, that's only got a 98%, you know, utilization, 4.52%. You know, there's a lot of, lot, anyway, these are some stats I'm rattling off, but it's a very highly shorted stock. It's still, that's our point. And there's a big candidate for a short squeeze at some point. And I think Daniel Schreiber said like the next two or three quarters, they could be have worse, uh, um, you know, lower, bigger losses each quarter, the next two or three quarters before they start turning around the shift to be more, start becoming profitable again. So to me, that's, that was one takeaway I took from the Q and a, where it's like the next two or three quarters, each quarterly report could be another buying opportunity after each quarterly report to buy more or accumulate lemonade shares. There's probably going to disappoint each of the next two or three quarters. Um, but at some point, uh, it's going to turn around, we think. And th the thing is, if the, 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 this could be the best time to buy it if the whole tide of the macro markets for tech and growth stocks recover, because that's been driving the price more than anything, obviously, in all the tech stocks. But if the if the macro markets kind of recover, um, sort of in ter terms of like the tech stocks, then Lemonade will be along with that tide and, and go up. So $24 a share, or $1.5 billion market cap or whatever it is now, I think, um, that could be the low, but if, if the macro market stays static to where it is now, let's say then the next two or three quarters, each quarter could be another buying opportunity after the earnings, uh, report until they turn things around. But one or two years out is when we'll find out, I think, um, if, if it's successful or not, and it's all really car insurance is the big, the big thing. So once they yeah. finish Metro miles acquisition next quarter and, uh, you know, then, then they implement it and it'll take a couple quarters to kind of see the results. And that's the, that's the huge, that's the, you know, that's what it's, what, what it's all about for lemonade is the car insurance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, they're, I, I think they've, they've um, got a little bit more wiggle room with, with their home insurance too. I mean, the, the majority of their products <clears> are, <throat> or their, their policies are those lower price policies, renters in particular. Um, but it, if they can, they had these huge loss ratios on, on uh, home insurance, obviously, this quarter. But if they can figure that out and then they they uh, are successful in ramping, you know, their home and their auto insurance policies, like those are drastically higher revenue um, opportunities. So you could see, you know, I, I just feel like there's this, this huge potential that you could have growing customer base, you know, amplified by growing revenue per customer. So it's um, I, I think my my confidence maybe dropped slightly after that earnings call, to be honest with you, that they can figure it out. But I had been around mm -hmm. like 85, maybe at 85 percent now, maybe at like, I don't know, 70 percent or something like that, that they can actually turn this around. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm at like 50 50 still, uh, but it's asymmetrical, like you said, like if you if you. If they lose out, they slowly dwindle away or get acquired or something. But um, if, if the 50% chance that they succeed works, it's like a 10x or more return in my mind in the next few years. So, um, yeah, it's exciting to see how this plays out. It'll take time. The next couple quarters could be painful. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see.
All right. Uh, I guess we'll just go into some Q&A now. Let's do the next 20 minutes or so for Q&A. I know we've gone on a lot about all kinds of stuff, macro markets and Tesla. So, Alex, you want to uh, post the questions here? Let's see. The first question is from Life at 130 Beats Per Minute on Twitter. I still love that username. Uh, do you think the reduced Model 3 wait times are due to my Model Y cannibalization, stock market correction, or something else? What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I think... Um cannibalization maybe it's a little bit less likely to me but it, it could be um you know but i think they're they're continuing to ramp up uh production so um i i don't know i i tend not to put too much weight into kind of you know near-term movements in this um but yeah I, I don't think it'd be stock market correction um clearly the model y is a, a more popular car than than the model three and so so that's growing i guess it could be some cannibalization but uh i don't know i i don't have too many uh i guess concrete thoughts yeah. on that what do you think yeah how do we i mean i mean i could be in the dark here but how do i even how do we know that the model three wait times are getting reduced you know across every you know maybe it's just a performance version model threes are getting reduced wait times or something or maybe just one region in california you know like it's it, it in my in, in the history of Tesla, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, the times are getting reduced. But in reality, it's just like one category of the car has reduced because it's more profitable for Tesla or that's more logistically deliverable at the end of the quarter or a certain time or whatnot, or a certain variant with, you know, the dual motor only is being reduced because the single motor is hard to supply or something. So it's hard to hard to say. Is that for sure? Like across the board, all Model 3 wait times are being reduced. Is that I don't know. I mean, I'd have to so start with I that. I'm just looking right now and, you know, at least in the U.S. generically, it says the Model 3 performance is is March, the long range is May, and the real world rear wheel drive is June. Um, okay. So I think that's kind of consistent with the, the having shorter lead time for the higher end variants. We've seen, it, seen that historically. Uh, but there's also this kind of, you know, um, delivery wave that, that they've historically done, which they continue to do where they, you know, try to export from Shanghai and from all their, their factories to the kind of the furthest out re regions in the beginning of the quarter. And then, you know, they'll, they'll deliver to California or to, you know, Shanghai yeah. or wherever yeah. uh, in the, the third month of each quarter. So. And yeah, seasonally, I, sure seasonally isn't, um, isn't it stronger delivery? I, I can't know. I don't forget which quarter, but there's a certain quarter where it's typically slow. If it's like the second or third quarter, I can't remember, but there's seasonally, just the demand, consumer demand in general for, you know, upgrading their cars or switching in for new cars is typically low. So what if maybe this is something to do with that too for this particular quarter? I don't know. Um, but there's a lot of potential factors, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm not sure though. It's a good question to consider, think about. From Mark Gomez, Tejeda, you see any M&A opportunities for Tesla, merger and acquisition opportunities for Tesla in fiscal year 2023 can be generating above 40 billion in cash flow per year. I only see dividends or share repurchase or huge MA transactions. I agree. I mean, I think they're cash, they're on the verge of being a cash cow, especially if uh, full self-driving kind of matriculates here and gets turned on widespread usage for widespread usage. They're gonna have tremendous amounts of cash, uh, you know, a war chest of cash. You know, I, I see share repurchases maybe. I'm not sure Elon wants to do any big M&A transactions. I mean, I could see him doing small things like they did for Groman or Maxwell Technologies for particular niche technology or particular niche engineering team or something. But I just don't see them making any major multi-billion dollar, you know, purchases of like Stellantis or Ford or so. I think that's <laughs> way too messy and 
and just not a good, I don't think, I just don't see Elon doing that. What do you, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, I have, there's, there's actually one company I've thought for like a year that, that Tesla probably should buy. Um, it's called NLX, uh, E-N-E-L-X. Um, it's a subsidiary, mm. I think of an Italian company, but, but, uh, I've actually worked with them in the energy space before and essentially they're like experts in global energy markets. And, and so, um, as I've said a couple times before, like the energy industry is just very unique. It's very kind of siloed geographically with, with like huge amounts of regulations and, and vastly different market structures uh, in different regions. Um, and so NLX has kind of had, they've got relationships with all these regulators and um, they're really great at kind of aggregating assets. So, you know, when I was managing mm-hmm. a wind farm, I was speaking with them about like partnering with other wind farms and solar farms and they would essentially kind of like aggregate them together and, and sell a, a combined kind of energy and capacity product and there's there's all sorts of reasons why you can make more money when you do it that way so without going into huge amounts of detail i think that's something that tesla could really benefit from they're trying to really build up a lot of that capability by scratch but uh for my mind tesla has like this huge hardware base of energy assets that's going to like scaling globally but they don't have the kind of back backbone, you know, energy market infrastructure to handle, you know, markets in Texas, markets in California, markets in Australia, markets in Germany, like, and they're drastically different. And, and so how you kind of aggregate those assets, um, like actually registering with each, each of the regulatory entities and, and like getting approval to sell like a, an aggregated, like virtual power plant. Like that's, that's not a small deal. Like that's a very heavy lift to do. Um, and yeah. you can't just do it all with software. You need like to file actual like applications that are you know, like intensive. And so I, I think partnering with a company like NLX or just frankly acquiring them who has all those existing relationships, I, I think that would allow t- Tesla energy to scale a lot more efficiently. So I'd love to see that, but I, I don't think it's on the horizon. Yeah. And just going back to that question about the, the wait times for the Model 3, we have some very intelligent uh, followers and listeners commenting that know this some of these details better than we do. do and they're saying that it's because of the wheels, the sports wheels have uh, the shorter wait times, or, or maybe the, you take the, the sports wheels off, the wait time is October. Uh, so, um, one guy, Andrew Bazile said in Southern California, they have a family member whose base plus white interior model three wait time has gone up by months. It was February, March. Now it's June and July. So yeah, you have to account for with the model three wait times, all the different variants, you know, some, sometimes certain variants or certain wheel types, you know, you know, they have an extra supply they need to get rid of, or, you know, so they'll advance those quicker, maybe they're higher margin or whatnot. So, um, just good information here. Lots of people adding lots of good good content to our, our, uh, our stream on the chat here from Farzad Misabi. Oh, Farzad, how's, how's it going? Uh, thoughts on Tesla getting a profitability boost in Q1 due to Hertz deliveries. Anecdotal evidence shows Tesla shipping quite a bit of them and shipping in bulk should generate more profit for vehicle. This is a very good question. I saw it earlier, actually, Farzad, I was thinking about it. And, uh, you might know more than us, given your insight working uh, at Tesla in the past. Um, so maybe um, the fact that you're bringing this up means there, 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 there could be a significant boost. My initial take was like, okay, maybe the deliveries are a little more efficient, but um, maybe that just adds $500, you know, of costs, or maybe a thousand at most per, of cost per car, which is still good, but it's not like the difference of a performance version versus, you know, a, a standard range version in terms of profit margins. But still, I think it would be helpful, one, whether it's a marginal help or a big help, um, 
you know, maybe it's several thousand per, you know, delivery expenses shaved, shaved off when it's a, a bulk delivery like that. I'm not sure, but I, I would I guess it's more like 500 to a thousand. Uh, let me do the next question. Matt's uh, relocating because of the, the sound. Uh, so we'll go to the next question here <clears throat> from AJ price. Question, what do you guys see as the main leading indicator for lemonade and whether it will be successful? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. I think they have enough cash in the bank to go on for, you know, a couple of years at least, um, maybe longer, I think. And so, next, you know, three or four quarters, the main leading indicator is the car insurance to me. I mean, how fast can they integrate the Metro Mile technology and everything they've bought Metro Mile into catalyzing their own car insurance uh, being pushed out uh, to all 50, I think they said 51, they think about it as 51 states, 50 states plus Washington, D.C. So um, right now they're just in Illinois. And um, so in you know a month or in a quarter or two, once they're fully integrated with Metro Mile and get all the licenses for all the other states that Metro Mile brings to the table, then we should see shortly after that, you know, lemonade car insurance being offered to, virtually all the other states in Washington, D.C. And and uh, it probably takes two or three quarters from that point to see if and when Lemonade will be really successful or not with the car insurance. So that's the big, you know, moment of truth for Lemonade in my mind. I mean, even without all the other stuff, home insurance, homeowners insurance, pet insurance, all that stuff is kind of like a little bit of a stable kind of like, you know, source of business revenue going on, which is good. But really, if you want them to be a 10x return, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to succeed in car insurance to some degree. So that's what I'm keeping my eye on the most is is the car insurance in the next year or so, how it progresses. All right, let's go to the next question. <clears throat> From Martin Muldoon, question Can you guys walk us through the impact of a plant opening on Tesla's financials? What new expenses hit the income statement? What expenses are already being accounted for? Matt, are you back with us? This is a wheelhouse question for Matt. Yeah, I hear you on Twitter Spaces, but the YouTube, I guess, is not showing up. Matt's gonna Matt. Matt's just reconnecting to his YouTube audio. He's on right, can you hear me now, Alec? Is uh, is that coming through? Yep, All good right. now. We hear you on YouTube and Twitter Spaces. Go on. Sorry for the, the continued issues. We weren't we're supposed to be done with construction now, but apparently that's not happening. Uh, anyway, um, so when, when a new plant does open, there's there's a couple different things. So so the biggest thing that you would probably think about is the, the capital expenditures. So um, like last quarter, I think it was $2 billion that they spent on like new plants and equipment and everything like that. Uh, so let's just say, let's take Berlin, for example, and let's say it cost Tesla, I don't know, $5 billion dollars to build that plant uh, and all the property plant and equipment, like all the machines that, that go in there, um, those will be, uh, those will, will go on the balance sheet and then they are, um, they hit the income income statement through depreciation expense. So uh, they'll have to assign a useful life to the equipment uh, and that can either be over a period of time or it, it can actually be over kind of units of output. Uh, but let's say it's like, you know, five years of time. So then you'll kind of depreciate that um, five billion dollars over five years, and so then that kind of hits your operating expenses as um, um, uh, depreciation expense. Then you know within the plant you've got some some machines and the the labor, the actual employees uh, who make the products themselves. Um, so that all those expenses that are kind of 
uh, directly attributable to to the actual units coming out. Uh, those those will generally run through your your cost of goods sold. Um, so that that will kind of hit there. And there's you know um, generally speaking, because you've got like a big chunk of depreciation with a plant opening and low volumes. Um, you've got, uh, and frankly, you're just less efficient at making the cars. So your cost per car is probably a little bit higher as well. Uh, you, you're going to see a gross margin hit, um, and, and an operating margin hit, um, uh, from that new plant opening. But then, you know, you look at the overall company and you look at like, you know, the supercharger network, you know, the costs of that are, are relatively low. And you look at, you know, the, um, accounting staff and you look at, you know, like all the, like all the headquarters staff and, you know, Andre Carpathy and his whole team. Um, all those costs don't, you know, increase as a, as a result of opening a new plant. So generally speaking, uh, as that plant gets up and running, um, it, it, it should, uh, improve the operating income of, uh, uh, or the operating margin of the company because they, their, um, gross margin will increase faster than their operating expenses will increase. So generally speaking that that's how it should work. Uh, I could go into a lot more detail on that, but I think we'd lose half our audience. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. From QB and YouTube uh, chat question. If Lemonade is using AI, which is supposed to be more efficient, why are their loss ratios so extremely high? You think they can be successful in time frame to achieve this? Yeah. I mean, I know some people think the Lemonade AI is like a secret sauce or secret weapon. I'm, I'm in, I'm indifferent to, you know, whatever Lemonade AI is, to be honest. Like, I, I don't think that's the secret sauce to me. I know, I know, you know, um, some people, Matt might think more strongly of it than I do. I think that's close to a commodity, whatever their kind of AI software is that other insure tech providers can try to replicate that same, you know, AI kind of, you know, um, chat bot or whatever it is, you know, but I, I think the real secret sauce of Lemonade is the entire backbone infrastructure they're building out that they control, you know, vertically, you know, the whole stack, you know, from A to Z and uh, except for, I think, life insurance, they piggyback off of some other uh, New York life or something else. But um, the fact that they're building this entire ecosystem themselves and, you know, they might integrate among the best with whatever AI, you know, such a commonly used word, whatever software they've implemented might be among the best of what's out there in the insure tech world. But I think the fact that they have, their own infrastructure allows them to be much more flexible with that software and kind of update it anytime they want very easily across the entire backbone um, without getting approvals of whoever the legacy provider is that are white labeling or, or integrating with the white labeled infrastructure they're using. So that, that's what I think the secret sauce of Lemonade is and um, just how they've architected the formation of their business and the fact that they have, you know, a good software technology team behind them uh, just allows uh, that team to really make use of that backbone infrastructure in a more efficient way than anyone else. That's in a nutshell, that's sort of what I think about it. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, I think they're, they're very clearly not, you know, more efficient right now. I mean, they're, they're much worse than industry average in terms of their loss ratios. So, um, you know, I, I think you have to, um, believe that they're they're working on that and they're trying to get back to you know those, those kind of levels of you know high 70 percent or so mid 70 percent or so loss ratio um and if they can if they can do that uh, then i think the real advantage they have is that uh they're they can scale their revenues quite drastically from where they are right now uh while keeping operating expenses relatively flat i mean to me that's that's their 
benefit is kind of a scaling of, of operating or of, of revenues and, and that the operating leverage that that can bring, not necessarily, you know, the, the AI being amazing at, at quoting things. Now, over time, I, I do think maybe that that could um, come into play more. But right now, I mean, even even what management is saying, they're not saying they're going to leapfrog the industry in terms of, you know, getting loss ratios down to like 60 percent or anything like that. They're just saying they want to bring it down closer to industry average. So, you know, clearly they're not more efficient right now. Um, they've got less data than, you know, the, the historical insurers have. Um, but I think it's reasonable to presume that that should, you know, as they get more data and they get kind of more experience saying, okay, we had all these huge losses in Q4, what did we miss and, and how can we better flag that? Um, so I think they'll be improving the, the, the quoting software and, and kind of their, um, it should, it should lead to some improvements, but I, I agree with Emmett that that's not core of the thesis here. Yeah. They're still kind of in growing pains mode as, as you have know, a company's kind of evolution They're you know, sort of like Tesla was in his growing pains for many years, like trying to get profitable lemonade's kind of in a similar spot, but you know, not producing, you know, hard tech, obviously it's all soft tech and, and insurance services. And I feel like, um, you know, they're, they're close to that tipping point of, you know, maybe like Daniel Schreiber said in the earnings call that, you know, two to three quarters is what he expects until they're kind of at that tipping point where the pendulum starts swinging back the other way, where they start becoming more and more profitable over time uh, or less and less unprofitable and then profitable soon after that. So, yeah, I mean, that's you have to watch out for that guidance and, and see if how accurate that is, I guess. From Curtis Johnson, if Lemonade gets all the state licenses sorted, should Tesla take their big pile of cash and acquire them? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't think Tesla needs to. I mean, they could acquire uh, Lemonade for, you know, uh, you know, a tenth of their balance sheet by that time or, or less or, you know. Less, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, by that time. Uh, so, you know, I don't think Tesla needs to acquire them. I, th I see Lemonade as I think Tesla likes to build their own kind of uh platform from scratch and they're already like pretty far into it on their own. Um, I do think that uh, Lemonade could be a great um, insurance provider for all the non-Teslas out there. I mean, I, I think people who own Teslas are going to be more likely using Tesla insurance than Lemonade for sure. But people who don't own a Tesla, Lemonade is going to be a very good uh, solution or option for them, I think. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I think Tesla maybe should have acquired Metro Mile because I mean, that that was yeah. like buying all the licenses. That's that was a hugely valuable kind of strategic move in my mind. Uh, that yeah. that I think is still not properly valued by by the markets. I mean, um, the potential for that to drastically increase the revenue potential of, of Lemonade is, you know, really huge. And so um, that would have made more sense for Tesla to acquire in my mind. You know, just purely buying the licenses and said Tesla's going to have to kind of do that state by state and there'll be a painful process i mean we're already kind of seeing that they're they're picking the fight with california over you know the the use of um driver data so um it's going to be a slow process i think for tesla um but for lemonade i, I do think it's uh yeah there, there's potential that you could see a kind of huge change in their uh revenue per customer uh if they're successful in kind of cross-selling that product to uh, to their other customers yeah, absolutely. All right, last question, and then we'll uh, end this. Let's see what the last question is. Um, it's from Handyman IRD. What do you think about Astra? Do you feel Astra might be possible to establish as a solid player in rocket launch space industry? Yeah, I mean, people have been bringing up Astra a lot to us. 
you know, they, they tried to launch another rocket recently that was unsuccessful, I believe. Um, so it just shows how hard launching rockets to lower Earth, Earth orbit is. And Astra's trying to launch like really small rockets for really small satellites. And that's, I like their thesis that satellites are going to keep getting smaller. That was also sort of Peter Beck's thesis originally in doing Electron is that he knew that um, satellites would continue to iterate to get smaller. So you don't need as big of a rocket to launch them into space. Um, so it's possible, you know, hopefully Astra figures out how to launch things into lower Earth orbit, but they could be far away from doing it reliably. You know, like I, I don't think they've launched anything yet to lower Earth orbit. I think they failed like all three or four times they've tried or maybe half succeeded one time. I can't remember, but they could be a lot further away than people think to getting things to lower Earth orbit. I just don't know. Like maybe they're on the cusp of it. And once they do it, they can do it reliably going forward. Or maybe they're just they just don't have the chops to figure it out. And maybe it's just a special kind of engineering team that only SpaceX and Peter Beck and his team have been able to do. Um, so it's hard. To, it's just a lot of unknowns with Astra. I think it's got like a one billion market cap. I'm trying to pull it up, um, which, you know, it's small, but they have they have a long way to go if they want to catch up to even Rocket Lab, I think. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's the there's this concept within this, the space industry of, of a vehicles heritage. Uh, so essentially, how reliable is it? Um, you know, in Falcon 9 clearly kind of has the best launch heritage right now. You could argue like Soyuz or some of the ULA products as well, but those are just like drastically more expensive. Um, but if you if you're developing, you know, a very expensive satellite or, or frankly, just any satellite, you just you need your business relies on, you know, getting your, your satellite launched. Um, you don't want to put up with a potential, you know, 12 month delay if, you know, um, Astra or whoever can't, can't get their technology figured out to, to launch to low earth orbit. So, yeah, I think if they, if they can figure it out and, and you know, get to start delivering payloads to low earth orbit reliably, then, then yeah, maybe they'll figure it out. But there's a, there's a huge amount of risk there in, in my mind, whereas, you know, Rocket Lab is still valued at like 5% of SpaceX, even less than that now. Uh, but they've got, uh, a, I would say, a very enviable, you know, launch heritage. Um, so that's really valuable to operators within the space and, and the space industry. And so I think that's um, for the risk reward payoff of, you know, a very small cap company right now at, you know, just over $4 billion. I'd, I'd rather put my money with Rocket Lab than, you know, try to make a bet on third place um, for something that's under a billion dollar market cap. Yeah, maybe yeah. there's a higher reward there, but I, to me, the risk reward is not nearly as attractive as it is with Rocket Lab. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, Astra, a lot of other space backs came out, you know, just and got great evaluations in the last, you know, 12 months or whatnot. And uh, yeah, I mean, everything else space industry related is like building prototypes in electric vehicle industry in my mind. It's like, you know, you can a lot of companies can build these prototypes, but to mass produce them, like to produce thousands of them efficiently and sell them for any kind of profit margin, you know, in a way that the customers like the product and stuff, that's very hard. And only Tesla's achieved that. And and to me, that's like SpaceX has achieved that in the space industry, that type of milestone or, you know, Fermi's paradox hurdle or whatever. And uh, Rocket Lab is, has achieved that sending things to lower Earth orbit consistently and reliably, but no one else. So until Astra starts sending things to space, you know, a few times in a row, you know, consistently, I, they're not even in the conversation for me. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's great. Uh, questions by everyone next week. We'll be back and uh, hope, you know, 
hope our uh, concerns about Putin and nukes that we talked about in the first 20 minutes don't come don't become more serious. Uh, hopefully, Ukraine will pray for them and the people there and even the Russian soldiers who don't know what they're getting into. Um, just a terrible humanitarian crisis across the board for Ukrainians and even the Russian soldiers who are kind of forced into this without knowing what they're getting into. So sad situation. And uh, hopefully next week, um, maybe there'll be some good news coming around of ceasefires or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, first and foremost, this is a humanitarian issue. So our, our thoughts and, and our prayers are definitely with the, the people of Ukraine and, and frankly, everyone who's impacted by this. So I'm hoping for a, a peaceful end, even though we're, we're kind of preparing for uh, the worst case scenario. Yeah. All right, guys, we'll see you uh, next week. Thanks, everyone.